You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio. We are also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And today, we are broadcasting from the Mendocino Coast Redwood Senior Center. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. On August 16, 2019, Lauren Brooke Eisen was on this show talking about her book, Inside Private Prisons. That was a good conversation about a good book. But, 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 what we talked about was like an inset in a world atlas, just a small part of a much larger map. Today, we are going to talk about that much larger map, actually the whole atlas. My guests today are Kay Whitlock, a writer-activist focusing on structural violence and inequality. She is co-author of Queer Injustice, The Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. Nancy A. Heitzig is professor of sociology at St. Catherine University, whose work centers on race, class, gender, and social control, with particular attention to the prison industrial complex. She is author of The School to Prison Pipeline, Education, Discipline, and Radicalized Double Standards. They are here to talk about their new, and I mean really new, book, Carceral Con, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Injustice, or Justice Reform, I mean. Uh, I am very glad to welcome to Politics, a Love Story, Kay Whitlock and Nancy Heitzig. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Very Thank you good, for having Bob. us. Thanks for having us on. Um, this must have taken a lot of research in order to get everything together that you did. Am I wrong in that? You're very right uh, about that. An enormous amount of research. We actually uh, started uh, working together when uh, we met each other on a political blog. I'm not going to mention the name of that blog because <laughs> we're not affiliated with it anymore. But we... Uh, met each other on on this political blog in 2008 and both had a strong interest out of our own experiences work experiences and activist experiences in the criminal legal system and the systemic structural injustice that both produced processes of criminalization policing and punishment and uh the the reforms that were um we're starting to, we're bubbling up uh, to take care of that. So we met each other and we began writing some blog posts and some analysis together and have done that off and on together and worked independently uh, since that time. Then we came together uh, to do this and fortunately uh, we're located in, there was an enormous amount of research, but we're also located within a broad academic, organizing, academic um, community, uh, a broad community that's actually international, that's been thinking and working on these issues for a long time. So there was a lot of, of richness uh, at hand. 
may I set the table for uh, our discussion over the next period of time? Uh, this book tells the story of the smoke and mirrors, nature of contemporary reforms that have not produced more justice from those reform agendas and their ongoing failures to dismantle the entwined norms of structural raci- racism and poverty so foundational to the criminal legal system. That's directly from the book. Would you like to go from there? Nancy, yes, why don't and, you take and, us? Yeah, and I, um, I guess, I guess as part of a follow-up to what um, um, Kay started with, um, probably the one of the most influential um, books in my uh, life um, is the is the small but mighty uh, text by Angela Davis called "Our Prisons Obsolete." Um, and that book has, I think, provided such a crucial framework for my thinking about this and um, does a really excellent job of laying out the foundations of the criminal legal system in the United States um, um, in racial capitalism um, the context of slavery and settler colonialism, uh, and the criminal legal system really in many ways is um, the afterlife of slavery, right? Um, so so that is, I think, an important context that, that certainly our situation of hyper-incarceration is relatively historically new, um, but the foundations of it are are very old and really go back in many respects to the to the founding of this country. Um, what what is new, um, and Dave speaks to this um, really throughout all of her work, is what scholars and activists have come to talk about as the prison industrial complex. Um, and certainly the prison is the um, end of the road of that system in um, many respects. You know, the incarceration of 2.3 uh, million people in prisons and jails in the United States. Uh, but, the, but the system itself has, um, you know, includes early processes of criminalization. Um, it includes reinforcement of... Um, both images of criminality and, you know, the promise of, quote-unquote, public safety via media, um, its governmental sectors, its private sectors. Certainly, um, you know, the private prison, as you mentioned, is a, um, you know, is a small but kind of explicitly profiteering piece of this. Um, you know, it includes prosecutors, um, the court system, um, bail system, you know, correctional control in the community, um, um, whether it's pretrial diversion that that um, increasingly catches people up in fees and fines and um, surveillance, um, community corrections, probation, uh, parole, and all of the consequences of that. 
you know, it's an employment sector for large numbers of people to work in this system. Um, you know, it serves the political economy. Um, you know, there, there it is. Um, it's a huge apparatus um, that, that really impacts all of our lives in ways that we don't even think about. So basically, what you're saying is that uh, racism is baked into the system, and therefore, I guess, uh, it, when at the college level critical race theory is discussed, this should be part of it, shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And not, and, and not only is racism baked into it, but poverty is baked into it. And in a system of racial capitalism, as the great geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore uh, notes, that capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. Mm. So we're really talking about the almost seamless and completely insidious um, meshing of, of structural poverty, structural racism, at the intersections, too, of, of, of gender and disability. So it's, um, and we are talking about, about systemic stuff, as you note, not only baked into the system, but this is the system that produced processes of criminalization that decides who's going to be criminalized and what the function of policing and, and uh, surveillance and carceral control, what those systems uh, are really going to be. So we wrote this book to help people understand that system. And because in the last 20 years or so, a sort of so-called bipartisan reform consensus has come into being and is increasingly is being institutionalized and promoted by a highly effective, very well-funded public relations uh, effort. We wrote this book to help people question and look beyond public relations talking points in order to understand how and why most criminal justice systems reform do not shrink permanently shrink systems of policing, surveillance, and carceral control, and significantly reduce the structural inequality and violence that's embedded in But in fact, most reform agendas expand that structural inequality and violence and reach of systems of surveillance and carceral control and policing. I want to uh, quote from uh, the book. In the U.S., whiteness stands at the apex of racial hierarchy, or at least the institutionalized political, political construct and cultural mythos of whiteness. Here, racial capitalism is buttressed by a particularly virulent current of anti-blackness. This refers to the structural refusal of U.S. society to fully recognize the humanity of black people while conflating their collective existence with the active presence of social disorder, danger, and criminality. I thought that was quite well written. Thank you, Thank Nancy. You. And, um, and... 
We, we of course, wish it weren't so, but... Yes. And, and what's also uh, disheartening is that there are so many attempts that have occurred in the past at uh, prison reform or the legal system reform that has gotten nowhere. And I think, as you pointed out, it's only gotten worse. And, and yes. You pointed to a whole bunch of places, including Mississippi, uh, which is not well noted for um, hmm, racial equality, among other things, uh, and, and Louisiana with the Angola uh, prison there, which is so notorious. It's, you see it in films and in books all the time as being yes. one of the worst of the worst. Uh, but uh, you also talk about uh, bipartisanship is a mixed, inconsistent, and unreliable quality at best, often harnessed towards oppressive ends. And yet people are thinking that, oh, bipartisanship is great, uh, but it's not really, uh, according to what you had to say. No, it's um, bipartisanship uh, in the service of what? You know, as we note in the book, bipartisanship produced uh, systems of of legal segregation. Uh, bipartisan system Oops. to promote uh, unnecessary and debilitating uh, wars, and bipartisanship has produced. Um, lots of terrible things. We can say, well, didn't it produce the Voting Rights Act? Well, isn't did that that hasn't lasted. And bipartisanship is so unreliable because we just think, oh, that's going to bring more civility across the aisles, Republican and Democrat. It might bring more uh, performative public uh, civility, but if you look at what's happening in this country, there's a lot of bipartisan promotion for a politics of austerity that promotes endless expenditure for policing and militarization and is utterly shredding social safety nets and trying to constantly shrink uh, any social spending for the public good, for things like health care, public education, uh, housing, uh, ecological and environmental protection, all of those kinds of kinds of things. So it's it's quite interesting to watch the bipartisanship on 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 this, with the idea that it's somehow bringing us across the aisle to. Uh, so that people of goodwill will really support uh, more justice. No, what's really happening is that some of the partners want more uh, systemic justice. Some of the partners want more systemic inequality, but they've come together on an agenda that uh, does uh, several things. It remains completely silent on the structural violence of policing and the criminal legal system. It remains completely silent on structural inequality that is race, class, gendered, and ableist. It is almost universally silent on the question of explosive immigrant detention. It's uh, the bipartisan reform consensus has nothing to say uh, while the, while they decry over criminalization. 
they have uh, nothing to say about the accelerating criminalization of protest and dissent, and they have nothing to say about the repressive control of reproductive justice and the criminalization of abortion. So we always need to ask, what's the larger social and political context in which reforms are unfolding and in which certain elite public players, public and private players, are coming together in uh, unlikely allies formulations. That's sort of one of the selling points of the bipartisan consensus uh, to move forward. And that's what our book focuses on. It digs down beneath that um, public image, that cozy, warm public image of bipartisanship to ask toward what ends. Yeah, and the bipartisanship, as you pointed out, in 1996, when Bill Clinton was president, it was the bipartisanship that produced one of the worst criminal reform bills ever that has now created mass incarceration, and sometimes for such low-level crimes as having one joint in the pocket of the person being jailed. That, that is not a good... Uh, show of bipartisanship that works for the benefit of all of us. No. No. Uh, it, go ahead. You know that the the history of um, reform, um, you know, has well almost always resulted in, you know, an expansion of the system. I mean, the prison itself is a reform. Um, you know, indeterminate sentences, the rehabilitative ideal was a reform. Um, well, then we need to reform that with, you know, um, determinate sentencing structures in the 70s, which, of course, you know, become the template for um, mandatory minimums and, um, you know, other draconian policies. So um, re- reform itself, I think, should be suspect, um, even, you know, wh- whether it's couched as bipartisan or not. I think that's a bigger point the book makes. Yeah, and one of the biggest problems to real reform are the lobbying groups that go and buy the members of Congress. Uh, yes. You just can't get anywhere because there are so many vested interests with a, with a lot of money at stake. Just one thing currently are the three or four members of the House of Representatives, Democrats, mm-hmm. who won't vote for the $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill. But as it turns out, those at least three of those are the largest recipients of big pharma money. So they can't they won't allow the bill to pass to negotiate, that's Medicare, to negotiate with the drug companies. Now, who is that affecting? It's affecting all of us. It is affecting all of us. And one of the things that our book, uh, we hope, is going to be used for, and, and even at this early date of, in its publication, we have some reason to think it will be used in this way, to help... Um, to help people dig underneath the public re- the the public relations image, imagery or the impulse to just go for um, angels and devils in in really simple ways 
Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned the sort of horrific role the Clinton administration played in the mid six uh, mid nineteen uh, you know nineteen ninety six and 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 on uh, in terms of accelerating mass incarceration. But you know, there's so much credit, uh, really terrible credit, to be given uh, to people in both parties even from decades earlier. Elizabeth Hinton uh, is a wonderful historian who, who has linked, um, you know, the rise of the war on poverty and so forth to how that gets morphed over time with help from both parties into a kind of war on crime. And that happens before Clinton comes along and it happens, um, Afterwards, so there's there's been both parties, and really a lot of it has to do with who is being protected by the criminal legal system in this country, and who is consistently being sacrificed to it. Because almost every time, you know, one of the things we say in the book is that um, with every social problem ranging from, you know, structural poverty to um, the, um, the gutting of, of public systems of support and health care and education and that kind of thing and, and, and problems of addiction with people who, uh, who are impoverished and despairing and all of that kind of stuff. Every problem that racial capitalism helps produce by requiring its systemic inequality and violence becomes a site for policing. And it almost doesn't matter. In fact, it really doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat or somewhere in between if what you're looking to do is just criminalize the problems that racial capitalism is producing rather than getting at the, the, the core issues, the structural issues, and saying, look, this thing was flawed from the start. You know, this violence was built in, and it has literally built the system we have now. And reforms are merely blunting the massive protests and uprising that have, have begun in recent years um, to, to, to sort of take note of and protest the essential racism uh, of, of, of the system. And the reforms are, are, in a sense, helping to blunt that. They're trying to use, sometimes co-opt the language of, of abolitionists and other progressive um, people who are fighting police and carceral violence. Uh, and it's, it's really um, kind of interesting because reform is trying to tell people the most comforting possible story and that comforting possible story, which is just a few little tweaks to the system is going to produce real justice because nothing's really wrong with the system and nothing needs to structurally change. Just these tweaks. That's a lie. And that's the, that's the lie um, we confront over and over again in this book, but we're not talking about, in the book, and it's important to say, we're not trying to attack the intentions of individuals. We're not trying to attack um, uh, 
the intentions of some of the groups that are participating in these reform, uh, the reform consensus agendas and, and coalitions, we're looking at the impacts. There's no need to question intention when you look at the impacts of, of what's happening. And the impact is expansion, not shrinking. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. Uh, we are talking today to Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig about their latest book, Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. And I just wanted to uh, uh, point out that you talk about the entrenched interests, the status quo seekers who want to refer to the, if you're well, poor, black, or Latinx, you're disposable, as you point out. Uh, and that's how they're treated. Uh, and so how can you get out of that uh, trap? And you say that 73 million people have been in, uh, incarcerated in this country with that mark on their uh, record. How can they get or ahead? Or they at least have a criminal record. They they may not have been incarcerated. But, oh. but I mean, it's like, yeah, one in three... Um, persons in the U.S. have a criminal record. Yeah, that's terrible. We in, we imprison more people than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. How could that be? We're supposed to be... It's even worse than you think, Bob. Uh, most states have a higher rate of incarceration than most nations in the world. Most individual U.S. states. Prison Policy Initiative has a report out on that. So it's mm-hmm. more than the 2.6 million you mentioned before? No, I'm um, saying. Well, I'm if we're going to talk about uh, the 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 rates. I mean, the U.S. is certainly the highest rate in the world. Um, but um, Prison Policy Initiative has a report. Uh, it's an ongoing project that they just updated again. It's called States of Confinement, and it compares the incarceration rates of individual states. And I mean, Louisiana is number one again. And they have an incarceration rate of, I don't know, 1,000-something, you know, which is even higher than the U.S. as a whole. But it compares state-by-state incarceration rates to a variety of nations in the world. Um, you know, and you've got to get down to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. I should pull it up. You know, but, but the majority of states, individual states in the United States, have incarceration rates that are higher than most countries of the world. Hmm. That's... You know, and, it, and it's a stunning graphic because it, it lays it out with, you know, in, in a bar chart. And, um, you know. So, okay, here's a question. Um, you say that uh, there have been lots of attempts at reform, but after every reform goes through, things are worse than they were. So how how can we go through this and actually make reforms that make it better, not worse? You know, that's a great question. And, the, um, you know, the, the um, um, abolitionists would talk about that it's important to um, um, support, and there aren't a lot of these, but there are um, what they call non-reformist reforms, which actually would... Um, immediately um, either alleviate um, the suffering of prisoners um, or would immediately reduce um, 
um, the number of people incarcerated. I mean, ending cash bail, if you were going to really just like end cash bail, that's it. If you were really just going to close Rikers Island and not build six new jails, right, um, those certainly would be would be um, reforms that people could and, 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 and I would say should support. Um, but, but part of the smoke and mirrors, or Kay likes to talk about sleight of hand or a shell game, right, um, with a lot of reforms is they sort of pretend that they might be doing that, but in fact they aren't. And they're adding, you know, new conditions for people, um, new fees for people. They're further enriching, um, you know, this plethora of companies that profit from providing technology to the system. You know, yes, and, you and I think that's part about... of the, the goal of the book, too, is because... We are recognizing that so many people um, do believe that the system is extremely problematic for, you know, that's an understatement. Um, and people do want reform. Um, um, we're hoping that one of the things that the book can do is provide a roadmap or a template for people with a set of questions they can ask to interrogate reforms as, as, as they're being put forward um, um, so people can make more informed judgments about what to support and what to resist. One of the ways that we could uh, maybe uh, push forth better reforms if it, is if we had better information. But as you point out in your book, even though uh, there have been rules put in place for uh, police departments throughout the country to report to the FBI accurate numbers in use of force or uh, in shootings, and yet the problem is they don't do it. The cities, states, uh, and other organizations just don't give the FBI the right information or any information. How can we change that? Well, one of the ways we don't change it is exact by doing exactly what's happening now, whether it's um, Biden's uh, COVID-19 hate crimes bill or whether it's uh, <clears throat> other reformist measures that are coming up. Uh, ProPublica did, did a, a long project, unquote, documenting hate, where they're just focusing on what's called uh, hate violence. What they really mean is vigilante violence that's directed against uh, vulnerable and marginalized group, partic groups, particularly black people, Latinx communities, uh, indigenous communities, trans people, queers, people with disabilities. <clears throat> so so the, the new reform measures are saying, well, let's give the police departments and prosecutors, et cetera, et cetera, more money to develop special units and special requirements for this time really giving us the real information. Hmm. So the, the failure becomes the reward for failure is more money mm -hmm. to get into the same bind over and over. And remember that reporting 
especially, you know, federal reporting to the Uniform Crime Report and, and so forth. It's not it's not mandatory. We have I don't know what the number is. It may be over eighteen thousand by now, but it's somewhere between more than seventeen thousand to more than eighteen thousand uh local and state and county uh, law enforcement agencies in different jurisdictions in the country. Hmm. And less than half of those, I mean, way less than half of those generally report uh, crime data or even, you know, and they'll say, well, we have uniform uh, reporting forms for doing that. But all these different jurisdictions have their own way of evaluating and considering What's a crime? What's not a crime? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's um, what we've got is a structural problem that we keep trying to address with procedural and managerial techniques that take as a given there's just a little tiny problem in an otherwise sound system. It's not a sound system. It's not a sound system at all. Having said that, the system isn't going to immediately disappear and we just have, you know, uh, uh, an instantly ready uh, sort of set of, of, of ideas. But just as the original anti-slavery abolitionist movement in this country built steadily over time to finally achieve um, what it wanted, only, of course, to see to see that 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 politicians were not willing to hold strong through uh, for racial justice through through reconstruction um, mm-hmm. and and the aftermath of that um, you know it's 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 really kind of interesting we're building the case that we have to start at structures there's no place where you can enter this system and just say, we'll make this little tweak, and finally this is going to work right when the entire premise, um, not not the public relations premise, but the premise of, of this system, uh, we, we need to question it. The outgrowth of police are from a number of different sources. They're from slave patrols in the Northeast. They're from trying to control police poverty and control labor um, organizing efforts to to gut labor organizing efforts, and there are there are all kinds of raced and classed and gendered systems in process from the very beginning to define who's likely to be criminal and who isn't. So we have to start instead of arguing over how much money do we continue to give police forces that have never. Um, collected the right data or even reported it, much less done anything else um, that that reforms were supposed to have them doing. Why don't we start to start at different places? I'll just mention a couple of things. The original hate crime um, statistics act uh, federal was passed in 1990. Biden's COVID-19 hate crime bill is still trying to give more money and more support to getting good hate crime data. At what point do you just say, 
this is absurd. This is cosmetic cover to a structural problem that's far deeper. The Prison Rape Elimination Act was passed with bipartisan support in, what was it, Nancy, 2003, I think it was. Yeah, in the George um, Bush era, yes. Yeah, and it's still, it's it's a joke. I mean, we we talk about that in some place, but nowhere is it proving to be a success in terms of actually reducing sexual violence inside um, inside prisons and and um, you know so it's interesting but people have short memories and in a media saturated clickbait kind of uh, culture people's attention spans can be fairly short part of our reason of writing the book was to sort of draw a line a line along the way so people could Hold on to this. It's a historical, it's a narrative, it's a cultural, it's a policy-related um, line to, to help see why what they keep hoping is going to happen that somebody else will just do is just not that easy. So the antithesis of giving lots of money where it hasn't done any good before uh, is to take away money. If you don't report... We're going to take away whatever. Uh, yes. That might be something that they could leverage the other people with, but it's also very complicated, as you point out, because of this. I like to read this small little quote from your book. Legislators define what is crime and appropriate and what is not. Police decide to watch, stop, question, cite, frisk, and arrest or not. Prosecutors decide to charge and seek bail or not. Judges and juries find guilt or not. It's not just one segment, uh, the police, that we need to reform. It's the whole system, as you point out in your book. Yes. And that's going to be a lot harder to do than take one thing at a time. But certainly, uh, instead of throwing money at things, as we find in the Pentagon budget, waste and fraud are rampant. They throw in extra billions of dollars. We're not at war anymore, supposedly. Why not Mm -hmm. reduce the budget rather than increase it? No, exactly. And I mean, you you know, the term prison industrial complex is coined really as an analogy to military industrial complex. And, you know, the old... uh, Former uh, general, former President Eisenhower's warning, right? Right. right. Um, on, on the way out, and I mean the the, the prison industrial complex um, operates in a in a, in a similar way that it's that it's really independent um, and disconnected in many ways from the reality of war or crime or what's really going on. It's just this juggernaut. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I will say about taking money away um, I I mean in my point of view if there was gonna be um well, there's lots of places you could um, you know, pick, but, but you know, the, the the beginning of the system, if there could be um real efforts to um decriminalize 
um, a number of what are current crimes. If there were real efforts to defund the police, um, that's, I think, an important starting point because that begins to control the potential flow of people into the system. Well, but that has, um, uh, that's a hot-button topic. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, I just want to point out a good thing. Um, so we here in the county of Mendocino, California, it's uh, mm-hmm. 88,000 population, I guess. Our former sheriff uh, realized that 25% of the inmates in his county jail were either drug-dependent or uh, had mental health issues, and they shouldn't be in his jail. Yes. So he had right. a, a program, and he passed this Measure B, which was supposed to put in mental health units in several places and remove those people from his jail. Uh, it hasn't gone very far because they had a committee of 13, and you must know that large committees get <laughs> nothing done. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. nothing has been done. It's been raising money through a, a, a tax, a sales tax increase. But that is something that is recognized, at least he thought of a way that he might be able to help, and he did something about it. Unfortunately, the system is so huge. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you change anything? Well, one well thing, I, I mean, it's interesting. The, the, the system is huge, but it does um, operate, um, you know, on a city level, on a county level, on a state level. Um, you know, I'm here in Minneapolis where... You know, we've been in some ongoing controversy um, (laughs) in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd about um, the police um, and defunding the police. Um, um, We are finally going to be able to, after a lot of resistance, um, you know, and still in the midst of endless propaganda and fear-mongering, we are going to finally be able to, in the city, um, vote on an amendment to change the city charter, which would... um, remove the requirement to hire a mandatory number of police officers and would also create a new Department of Public Safety, which may um, or may not include um, a police department, um, but certainly would spread out resources then to um, some non-punitive, non-criminal entities that may be able to provide services to people. Um, you know, will it succeed or not? I don't know. Um, but that's a starting point, I think. Well, I hope it works. But we, I do, too. We don't know yet if it will, if it will even get passed, because those moneyed interests are going to fight like hell and spend a lot of money. If you it's... know, they've gone, to, they've gone to court already. I mean, mm. it's finally had to go all the way to the Minnesota Supreme Court as to whether or not it could even appear on the ballot. <laughs> you know. But so, it's, yeah. not only, it's, not, it's not only um, money that's at stake. It's, it's political influence and it's forms of, of, of social control. And above all, um, the philanthropic and the corporate and the... Uh, political elites do not want to really let services and capacity 
for community well-being, for both individual and collective community well-being, develop outside of the framework of, of, of policing, punishment, and carceral control and forms of, of surveillance. One of the interesting things is, you know, um, it's good to hear that the sheriff is thinking in a more holistic way. Typically, a lot of what will happen in these things is even if somebody has this excellent intention that these people need um, social services and community supports, they don't need incarceration. That's only going to make the problem worse. That's a good thing. In translation, it often works into, um, but we'd better make sure they're still supervised. So let's make sure we provide these. I'm not saying your sheriff is, is doing this. I'm saying typically what happens is then um, reformers will say, what we will do is attach the services to the criminal legal system. So, so there's proper supervision. Now, sometimes that will be special units inside jails and prisons for people with uh, mental health concerns. It may be so-called gender responsive units that are, are supposedly going to uh, be gentler and kinder to women and gender nonconforming people. Um, but they'll keep those attached, or even if they're not within jails and prisons, they'll do processes of diversions or even send people to special courts. And Nancy can talk more about this. How The diversion seems to be, see, we're not sending these people to, to, to prison. And yet they remain within this uh, reach and system of, of carceral control for which they may end up having to pay for mm -hmm. their own coercive treatment, or they may have to pay fines and fees. They may have to pay for their own parole supervision. They may have to pay for their own counseling um, system. But none of this is ever talked about. Hmm. And I'm not saying that your sheriff was supporting that. I'm saying typically this is the kind of thing that happens a problem will be acknowledged and agreed with, and then the solutions to it simply rearrange how the carceral control happens and then attaches more money to it. But the benefit mm -hmm. is not only financial. It really is also uh, quite heavily uh, political and in terms, of, in terms of social control and a sort of cultural marketplace hegemony uh, for for the country it, it you know it has many interrelated benefits and what? that's why we also call it a prison industrial complex the benefits are multiple and they all there's always money at the center of them but there's lots of political and lots of social mm -hmm. uh, power and influence at stake too the ma mantra of defund the police i don't think that people actually mean directly but they're talking about things that we just discussed the fact that you can take some of that money to divert people outside of the prisons if they need uh, an addiction 
repaired, they could go to some kind of a rehab center. If they need mental health care, they could have professionals deal with them rather than put them in a jail cell. Well, they're only going to get worse because, as we know, within jails and prisons, uh, what we have done is allowed more corruption by the prison guards and other people uh, so that they can get cell phones, they can get drugs more so than they could and more easily than on the street. So why keep those people that don't belong in jail in jail? But then you have to understand, and Nancy can speak to this with with special um, knowledge of of the con that's embedded and the deception that's embedded in talking about diversions and alternatives to to incarceration. They're really not alternatives to carceral control, and they can often end the people who 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 are sort of quote diverted in that route end them up in in with crippling amounts of monetary yeah. debt and ineffective help. Nancy, why don't you say a little more about that? Yeah, I I will. And before I get there, let me let me say a word about. Um, the, the fund, the, the police. I mean, um, part of that is 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 literally about is literally about to fund the police. Um, you know, and and a piece of that is about why why when there is a nine one one call for someone having a mental health crisis, um, that police are turning up. Why why aren't other um, professionals um, turning up? You know, because we we all know many many of the of the bad stories where um, family members or even um, victims themselves have called the police for help and have, you know, ended up in the statistics of, you know, one person killed every 24 hours by police. So um, there is a real effort in that movement to reduce, you know, just at the very beginning, reduce the amount of police contact, um, with with certain populations around certain issues. Um, the diversion question, I mean, in the purest sense, if you were diverted from the criminal legal system, you, you know, you, you'd be out the door, right? You're, you're diverted, you're free to go. Um, what has proliferated are diversion systems that end up placing... Now, now, mind you, these are people who have not been convicted of a crime. We're at the very front end of the system. They've been charged with a crime. Often these diversion programs are part of a plea bargain, um, you know, or, or a stay of a plea is a more accurate description, um, that if they will get drug treatment, this charge will be dropped off, if they will do this, that, or the other. Um, you know, and so they're often without a conviction, um, being subject to conditions that are very similar to the conditions that people would have in probation, right? Requirements for drug testing, requirements for unemployment, needing to check in. Um, Often this happens in the context of um, this proliferation of what people call specialty courts, um, veterans courts, homeless courts. Um, drug courts are the most popular, um, 
and 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 this is really not about diverting at all. It's about funneling people into, you know, I guess a side room, right, of the prison industrial complex where um, the image is is that this is better. This is an improvement. We're going to try to meet their needs, but it is still happening in a criminalized context. Um, they're facing pretty onerous conditions that they need to comply with, even though they haven't been convicted. Um, you know, one of the one of the terms that we point out in the book is the kind of horrific offender-funded fu- um, initiatives. You know, they have to pay fees and fines for their participation. And then, of course, if they, um, you know, fail to meet any of these conditions, then they're right back into the um, main action of the criminal legal system. Um, so it's just a way, is it really helping people? I mean, really helping people, in my point of view, would be like, you're free to go, we're going to refer you to some healthcare professionals, you're free to go, we're going to refer you to, here's a, you know, here's a housing and employment resources, right? We're going we're gonna to refer you completely outside of the system. Um, but that's not what's happening. And that's probably what the 13-person committee of your sheriff, right, is trying to figure out um, how to get this population maybe out of his jail, but to still maintain control of them with some kind of specialty court or, you know, adjacent feature of the, you know, criminal legal system. Well, actually, he's our former sheriff. But the other point I wanted to make, though, is if you let these people free and they have offended in some way or another, how can you guarantee that they will go for the treatment necessary, whether it be uh, to get off of a drug or to get some mental health care? How do you know that they'll go? How you do know, we know you, that you don't work? know that they'll go. Um, but, you know, now we're back to the criminal legal systems fixation. Um, I got dropped. Uh, um, I can hear you, Kay. Can yeah, you? I can hear her. Okay. Um, the criminal legal systems fixation um, um, on the poor, on communities of color, um, on LGBT community, um, groups that they've already tried to marginalize. Um, I mean, can anybody guarantee that, you know, I, I don't know, Robert Downey Jr.'s third trip to Hazleton is going to work out for him or not. Hmm. So, so there's this double standard that, that I have a hard time. People's problem is they don't have a house. People's problem is um, they don't have access to adequate health care. Um, people's problem is barriers to employment. Um, People have what sometimes sociology would call, you know, problems in living. Um, 
I don't think that the criminal legal system is the solution to that. I think a lot now, of people will agree. I think Kay agree. is asking if you'd call her back. Oh. Oh, no, I'm, I'm good. You, I'm you good are now. here now. Okay. It reconnected. So, I mean, does that make sense, Bob? Yes, it does. And um, I, I think what I would like to do is uh, what I mentioned before. Uh, I would like to continue this conversation. Uh, we'll end this session. Give me a moment or two to save uh, this show. And then we will continue this because there are still so many things we haven't gotten to. And then I marked a number of things about California since I am in California. My audience yeah. is in California. I would like to talk about some of those. So Okay. And, and I'm getting a message from Kay that she's dropped again. So maybe when you're, on your shifting over, you'll, you'll call her back again. Okay. So uh, we have been listening uh, to uh, Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig about their latest book, Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. And we're going to try something a little bit different. We still have more things to talk about that we couldn't get in in the 58 or so minutes that we have been talking. So what I am going to do is end this, and then um, we will start up with a uh, a new section that you will be able to access from the station's website and from my particular part in it, P Politics, A Love Story. So for now, I'm going to say goodbye. Thanks for listening in. And one other thing I want to mention. If you have questions or suggestions, why don't you send an email to dj at kzyx.org. Hi, you're listening to Politics, A Love Story, and this is a continuation of a program that is going to air on October 1st. Uh, and this is the extra part of that conversation because we had a lot to talk about. So, Carceral Khan, a book by Kay Whitlock and Nancy A. Heitzig. It's about the deceptive terrain of criminal justice reform, and there was a lot of information about what's going on in California that we didn't get to. And since you, the audience, are here in California, as I am, I would like to ask some additional questions or make some points. Uh, one of them is uh, that in California, uh, in 2011, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in favor of prison plaintiffs in Brown v. Plata. California had to reduce its prison population. And what did they do? They sent uh, convicts in some of the bigger prisons to county jails that had some space. Um, it has reduced the overall prison population in, in the state. That's the state convicts. But overall, it hasn't changed the overall number. And another thing about California is that black people are still incarcerated at a rate six and a half times greater than whites and Latinx people at nearly two times the rate of whites, rates higher than national patterns of racial disparity. And why do you think that might be? Um, I'm, I'm taking a deep breath. I mean, because, you know, sometimes the abolitionists would say, you know, um, the system is working as it intended. Um, so how would you reform that? Um, 
You know, and unfortunately, I think that's true. Um, certainly, the prison captures all sorts of people, um, um, but it's disproportionately and overwhelmingly um, um, a class and race and um, gendered situation. Yeah, and one of the other things you point out, that there is perhaps no better example of carceral expansion and the limits of criminal justice reform than the case of California. Mm -hmm. As the epicenter of the rise of the prison industrial complex, California has been at the fore of proposed criminal justice reforms as well as abolitionist organizing. And while the results of the latest reform efforts continue to unfold, it is clear that a massive policing and punishment apparatus is a monster that is much easier to build than to constrain. Yes. You put yes. it pretty well. And, yes. And um, with all, all of the reforms that are happening, of course, the, 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 the bill for law enforcement, the budget for law enforcement, just continues, uh, continues to grow. Yeah, in fact, uh, there's a quote that you have of Lao Tzu. People are starving. The rich gobble taxes. That's why people are starving. Yes. That was the one thing that I wanted to add to, um, um, you know, where we left off with the conversation, Bob, um, um, that, you know, nationally it's it's more than um, 180-some billion dollars every year that um, is spent on policing and courts and prisons and... Um, community supervision and 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 the whole apparatus. Um, and that's a lot of money, um, you know. And and as the book also points out, that explosion in funding um, occurs simultaneous to, you know, defunding, divestment, um, you know, austerity measures for all kinds of. Um, social goods, um, education, health care, housing, um, you know, and so it's, it, the, the, the vision is not just to reduce, shut down, abolish the prison industrial complex. It's also to re-resource um, life-affirming um, institutions and resources? Could people have access to education and employment opportunities and housing and health care? Um, could we use our public resources um, to uplift people um, rather than enchain them? Yeah. That's right. That one of the crises that we're really having is a crisis. The, the crises are not just budget crises. That's what neoliberalism always says when neoliberalism doesn't want to spend and wants to slash expenditures uh, for social goods in the public interest. And we're talking about spending public revenues uh, for public goods to help uh, – to help everyone have the basic supports of, of, of a decent life. But they will say there's a budget crisis, so we need to go through these convoluted reform procedures 
that they claim to be saving taxpayer dollars. They're not really saving taxpayer, do- tax- taxpayer dollars. But what is happening within the larger context is, and I'm glad you, you use that um, Ursula Le Guin um, interpretation from, um, from the classic uh, Tao Te Ching um, uh, about the, 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 the people are starving and people are starving because the rich gobble taxes. One of the things we do in the book is discuss everything within the context of what's happening in the larger society and economically. And one of the things has been, and it's, it's been happening, it's been happening for decades, but accelerating recently, and it's tax cuts for the wealthy. You know, so when, when you hear yep. rhetoric about uh, we're going to save taxpayer dollars, and, you know, liberals and well-intentioned people who actually care about justice will automatically interpret this as meaning, good, more money available for more humane and environmental protection purposes. That's great. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Less and less money is becoming available for those more humane and environmentally centered priorities. And it's becoming uh, structural inequality, structural poverty, which is especially raced, and it's also gendered, is widening and deepening. That's not getting any better. It's actually getting worse. Mm -hmm. So there's this talk about an elephant in the room that's not being talked about in the public debates. We tend to focus on just what's happening with people who've already been brought into the criminal justice system, often without people realizing what extraordinary discretionary authority people uh, police have for literally making up on enforcing it right on the spot. People end up with criminal records. They may even end up in jail for a year or longer without ever being convicted of a crime maybe perhaps even doing dead time. There are tons of people in jails who end up doing dead time who eventually charges are dropped or uh, something happens, but, but they've, they've done that time. They're, they're caught up in the system because they're the kind of people who are criminalized, and that's what police are focusing on. So we tend to think, well, those people wouldn't be in the system if they hadn't done something wrong. That's not correct at all. Mm-hmm. There are tons of people who've done lots of harm who are entirely respectable in positions of civic, religious, business, um, leadership, who've done, uh, who, who are political figures, who are religious figures, who do things that cause enormous harm all along, but they're not criminalized in the same way a whole population of, say, poor black people, uh, poor brown people, indigenous people, straight along, people who are houseless. I mean... Over and over, if you look at what happens, 
the criminal legal system distills and reinforces and strengthens, it reproduces and produces the same structural violence that filled these jails and cells uh, in the first place. And most people, most of the people in jail and prison have done nothing so harmful as to, to um, let, me, let me backtrack. I would say there are tons of people who don't need to be in, 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 in fact, nobody needs to be in jail at all. We do need ways to think not just of crime and who's already in prison and how do we start parsing to get them out, but how do we start building systems of justice that are broad enough to deal with the question of harm, and we deal with the question of harm that is structural harm, that is systemic harm, that is state-sponsored harm, that is harm happening because of the actions of large corporations, whether it's some huge industrial harm, whether it's um, environmental destruction, whatever. Our system of justice has no way of understanding structural systemic harm as part of the problem of harm we have to address. So it focuses on the people in jail, some of whom have done harm and some of whom haven't. But we can see that there's an extraordinary failure of the criminal legal system to address that question of harm in any meaningful way at all. So, Let me pose a very tiny solution to a, a small problem here in California. As you pointed out in the book, there are at least 2,600 incarcerated men and women who fight fires in the state. But because of their convictions, they are not allowed to become EMTs. Well, well, maybe if there was a way to move that forward, it wouldn't take a big hit in the budget. It might do some good, and it also might encourage other uh, prisoners to come out and fight fires, because as you well know, we've had a lot of fires here in California. Yeah. And the regular, the, the, the professionals are getting tired. Uh, even if they get the, the winter off, they're still getting tired and maybe it's too risky to do. And if more uh, incarcerated people would come out and do that because there is a bigger win at the end, that maybe they could find a different kind of job with the help of the system. It's not sure, big, but it's positive I rather mean, than negative. Well, sure, that can happen. The, the odd thing about it is, is sometimes it seems to happen, but kind of not really. Um, I don't remember all the details of it, but uh, I know that uh, Governor Newsom did uh, a year or two years ago uh, say, you know, we're making it more possible for uh, people who fought fires in prison to get good jobs when they're out. What sort of happened with that is that people got the right sort of to um, enter a new legal process to uh, improve their status in applying for jobs. It's sort of like 
with some of the, the sentencing reforms that it sounds like we're really going to make it easier. But what happens is it becomes dependent on the people who are trying for a better status to mount another tier of of legal and procedural fights that all mm. cost money. It may not yep. even be a fight, but there may be yep. legal fees in filing and so forth. And so it's you keep getting caught in this catch-22 churn. Yeah. So nothing is simple is basically what the uh, answer is. Yes. <laughs> yes, because there, right. there was a bill passed a year ago, um, but, but, but what it does is allow... Um, former prisoners to um, apply to have their record expunged, hmm. which is, as Kate points out, a whole other legal process that, you know, requires time and money, and I suppose, depending upon the complexity of your record, um, you know, um, attorneys. Hmm. Well, And it may or may not be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only have a couple of more minutes to go. Is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with, uh, whether we've talked about it or not? Uh, please do. Um, you know, while we're on California and since you're there, um, you know, if your readers are um, interested in the history of, um, you know, the emergence of um, prison industrial complex in California. Um, certainly, Golden Gulag um, by Ruth Wilson Gilmore is, you know, the go-to text for that. Well, first they uh, first get your book and then hers. <laughs> well, no. thank you. Well, thank I'm not you. so sure. <laughs> I'm it, not it, so no. sure. Um, um, and I would also like to acknowledge. Um, Critical Resistance, um, whose um, main office is in Oakland, hmm. um, they are, you know, and visit their website. There's an incredible amount of resources they've developed about um, various aspects of, of, of what is a prison industrial complex and um, various resources to help people think about what abolition might look like. So um, Critical Resistance, I'm always um, indebted to them. Okay. I would second that, and I would just like to add and remind your listeners that abolition is about creating life-giving, economically, socially, politically, legally, culturally, and environmentally just relationships and systems in which the emphasis is not just on controlling danger and trying to catch people at wrongdoing, but large enough to build the conditions that take away a lot of the conditions that help produce uh, produce all kinds of harm, uh, individual acts of harm, collective uh, systemic kinds of harm. And in doing so, we're really challenging ourselves to undo the, the kinds of prisons in our own mind, to really think about what justice could mean if we actually started putting racial justice, economic justice, gender justice, disability justice, and environmental justice 
at the center of our visions. And that actually is kind of a joyful thing. It's not just uh, naysaying. It's really building toward that different world that, frankly, we all deserve. Well, I want to thank you both. And the both are Kay Whitlock and Nancy Heitzig, whose book, Carceral Khan, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. And this is a bonus part of our conversation. The first part uh, is on the radio, and this is on the website. So thank you very much for listening. And Kay and Nancy, thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you. This thank was such you, a wonderful conversation, Bob. Yeah, I thought really so, appreciate too. appreciate it. You did a great job. Thank you. This has been Politics, A Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, A Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.